Next is reading the vent. Reading the vent like an EKG. And this is in two parts. The first part talks about reading the vent when you're dealing with obstructive physiology. Then we're going to talk about reading the vent with a lung injury pattern, which gets more complicated. So firstly, I should just say the best time to read the vent is when your patient is paralyzed. Because if you're trying to read the vent when the patient's not paralyzed, when they're dysynchronous, it's like trying to read an EKG when they're moving and flailing and you have all this artifact, right? You can't really read an EKG very well if the patient is all over the place, if they're over-breathing, if they're, you know, jumping out of bed while you're doing the EKG. Same thing, it's hard to read a vent if the patient is dyssynchronous. And by far, the best time to read a vent is when your patient is paralyzed. And this is why I like to, in my intubation, post-intubation checklist, I go and I read the vent. I go and I get to know their lungs. Airway, high five, whatever. Then I go to the vent. And that's one of the first things that I do. So that's the best time to read it. Now, what on earth do I mean by reading the vent? Well, let's start with obstructive physiology. So this is when we are dealing with airway resistance. In patients who have very high airway resistance for whatever reason, you know, it doesn't even matter why, but that radius is small and it doesn't have to be that small, just like maybe a little bit smaller than when it passes that threshold, that exponential threshold, you get in trouble pretty rapidly. Small changes in radius, again, can cause big changes in flow, can really drop your flow, can increase your airway resistance. Now, when I'm thinking about how to assess this on the vent, um, you know, it's easiest, I think, to conceptualize it on the volume time curve, but the best way to look at it is actually on the flow time curve. So on the volume time curve, we talked about this, you know, you have your inspiratory phase, you have your expiratory phase. During the expiratory phase, you return to zero. Fantastic. That's how it's supposed to look. That's normal. Now, unfortunately, if you have very high airway resistance, it's going to look more like this. This is your inspiratory phase. The problem is that you do not return to zero before the next inspiration. And if you do this repeatedly over and over again, it can become a problem. And it's like the exercise of taking a deep breath, exhaling half of it, taking another deep breath, exhaling half of it. It feels very uncomfortable. But also, if you do that long enough, you can actually just code. Often this happens with asthmatics, as we talked about, where people will just code because the pressures, the thoracic pressures get so high that they functionally develop tension pneumothorax physiology because they tank their preload. So I think that's the best way to conceptualize it in your head. But on the vent, that's actually not the best way to read the vent, to visualize it on the vent. The best way to visualize this on the vent is actually looking at the flow time curves. So normal day, this is how a flow time curve is supposed to look at. You have your inspiratory phase and your expiratory phase. At the end of the expiratory phase, before the next inspiratory phase starts, your flow returns to zero. Now, in a patient who is not doing well, in a patient who has asthma or COPD, 
and they're stacking breaths. They're not exhaling the entire breath before they take the next one. Here, you have your inspiratory phase here. You have your expiratory phase. But watch what happens. You do not return to zero. Your flow does not return to zero, meaning the flow doesn't completely cease before you take the next breath. And that is the best way to just glance at the vent and be like, "Mm, my patient may be auto-peeping. They may be breath stacking here, is looking at that, that they are not exhaling, looking at that flow time curve. That is what we're worried about. So that's the best way to look at the vent this way. Now, something we didn't get into in Vents 101 is that this also, unsurprisingly now, gets a little complicated. So let's say you have, I don't know, a bad asthmatic, and these are their current vent settings. Their respiratory rate is 26, their ID is 1 to 2, their PIP is high. So you do what you're supposed to do. You're like, high peak pressure, we're going to do an inspiratory hold. It looks like this, and what you discover is that their peak pressure is 46, but their plateau pressure is lovely, and it's 18. What that is telling you is that you have this situation. You have a beach ball lung and a coffee straw airway resistance. That's the situation that you are in. Now, when we do an inspiratory hold, because that's what we're doing first, we're getting a plateau pressure. That's the thing I do first that is useful. Now, if you want to quantify the degree to which they're auto-peeping, you can try to do that by doing something called an expiratory hold. It's the opposite of an inspiratory hold, as may be obvious. So you can press the expiratory hold button, and it'll give you a number for their intrinsic PEEP. What that number means is, if you're giving them a PEEP of five, how much pressure do they end up with at the end of expiration on top of the five? So that number should be equal to your PEEP. If it's higher than your PEEP, it means they're building up pressure on top of your PEEP because they're not fully exhaling, right? So the thing with that number is that for a whole bunch of physiologic and ventilator reasons I'm not going to get into at this very moment, take it with like a huge tablespoon of salt. It can be hard to interpret. It's very approximate. So I'll kind of use it to get some data, kind of help me ballpark some things, but don't take it too literally. Like a lot of things in medicine, you shouldn't be using one number to like make all your decisions. And you should know the test characteristics of the numbers that you're getting. And this one doesn't have great test characteristics. So take it with a grain of salt. I'll still check it sometimes. All right. Now, what happens here? What happens next? Since we were having so many problems with intrinsic PEEP, intrinsic PEEP building up, our flow time curve, the flow not reaching zero, we said, okay, maybe we should do something about this. So what did we do? We turned down the respiratory rate to 12. We lengthened the IDE to one to four. And now, voila, things are getting better, but kind of. Um, And you're like, but wait, I fixed it. My flow time's returning to zero. I did good things for obstructive disease. I have a low rate. I have a long IDE. Why is my peak pressure still high? Did they suddenly develop ARDS? What's going on? So you look at this and it went down, but not as much as I thought it should. So let me do another inspiratory hold to figure out what's going on. Do another inspiratory hold. My plateau pressure is still low. There's still a big difference between my peak and my plateau pressures. 
even though my flow waveforms were turning to zero, I fixed all the things. Why is this happening? It has to do with how you fix those things on event. Here's the deal. On event, only inspiration is active. We take some air, we push it into the patient's lungs, but we don't like pull it out with negative pressure. Event is all push, no pull, right? What that means is that the only way to adjust the IITE on event is to adjust the eye time. And specifically, if you want to make the IDE longer, you have to come down on the eye time. You can't elongate the expiratory time because you have no control over that. That's passive, which in fact is a lot of the problem with asthmatics on vents is you can't really do that much about the expiratory time. You can just optimize that ratio. So really, the main thing that you're doing is you're dealing with adjusting the inspiratory time. Now, to make the IDE longer, to elongate that IDE, what you do is you make the inspiratory time shorter. But take a minute to think about what you've just done. You are saying, I'm going to push the same amount of volume through the same size tube in a shorter amount of time. If you're taking the same volume, the same size tube, you're pushing it faster through the tube, your pressures are going to be higher. And remember, the peak airway pressure measures the highest pressure anywhere in the circuit. So that is why there's this difference. That's why once you've done this, you fix this, the flow waveform looks normal again, the IDE looks better, the patient is doing better, you may still have a big differential between your peak and your plateau. And it's often because the same patients who you need to do this in, you often need to have a really, really short inspiratory time. And so often that means that you have a high peak pressure still, that differential doesn't totally go away. Now, it's worth pointing out that in spontaneously breathing patients, both inspiration and expiration can be active. So, you know, think about it. You're watching a patient who's breathing really fast. Maybe they have asthma. They're not going, <gasps> that's not what they're doing, right? They're going, <sighs> they can have active expiration. So unlike on a vent, your spontaneously breathing patient can control what's happening a lot better because they can control both variables. They can control the inspiratory time and the expiratory time as opposed to the vent when you really only have strict control over one of them. Why is this relevant? Well, here's the thing. Remember at the beginning when we talked about goals of mechanical ventilation and airway, good idea, you protect the airway, fix the problem. If it's a lung problem, you intubate them, you let the lungs heal, blah, blah, blah. Then we said, but you know, if they're looking short of breath and in respiratory distress because of a hemodynamic problem or a metabolic problem, you may do them more harm than good by intubating them. Now, for the hemodynamic stuff, um, it's basically because you may often be making them worse either by what you're doing to them during intubation, you're giving them medications, it drops their pressure. Um, this is especially true for RV failure in massive PE. Um, I talk about that in my massive PE lecture or my RV failure lecture. 
But I'd like to take a moment to point out here a big problem that I see all the time. Um, actually, one of my residents called me about this the other day, this exact problem. So here's the deal. Let's just say you have a patient who is in bad metabolic acidosis. They have DKA, whatever it is, it's bad. I like to think about these super sick patients as being on a physiologic cliff for whatever reason. Something put them there. Your job is to get them over the cliff all the way to the recovery side, ideally without falling off the cliff in between. Now, if your patient is on that physiologic cliff because something is causing a profound metabolic acidosis, doesn't matter if it's gap or non-gap, profound metabolic acidosis, your spontaneously breathing patient is going to try and compensate, right? And from acid base lecture, you remember that the quick and dirty way of taking a look at the numbers and seeing if they're fully compensated respiratory-wise for their metabolic acidosis is, if they are adequately compensated, the last two digits of the pH should equal the CO2. This patient is fully compensated. Fantastic. Now, this patient probably looks really uncomfortable. They're probably breathing really, really hard. They don't look great. If you just look at them and have no idea what's happening, you just have this deep feeling. You just want to stick a breathing tube in them. You just can't help yourself. The thing is, wrong answer. That is, in fact, probably a good way to potentially kill them. Why? Because intubation is a fantastic way to get said patient to fall off that physiologic cliff rather than leaping over the physiologic cliff. Why? What's going on here? Well, first of all, the intubation itself is problematic and dangerous. The reason that is true is because of the following relationship between the patient's minute ventilation, so the total amount of air they are moving in and out of their lungs per unit time, so their respiratory rate minus their or times their tidal volume. Here's the relationship between minute ventilation and as the pH changes. So as your pH changes, you know, 74, 73, 72. All right, here's the deal. This curve has a very important inflection point-ish right about there. So if you're higher up on the curve, if your pH is sort of reasonable, um, it looks something like this. You know, your pH is sort of reasonable and you go up on your minute ventilation, your pH improves, fantastic. The same thing happens going down the curve, right? So, you know, you're at a high pH, you reduce your minute ventilation and your pH drops. But in this situation, it actually doesn't drop that much particularly. And so, you know, you can see if we go back here, your pH on this side of the curve, on this end of this curve to the right, your change in pH for change in minute ventilation is, you know, not that bad. Now, watch what happens when we move past this inflection point. So if we're on the right side of the curve, we drop our minute ventilation, and there's actually a pretty small change in pH for a given drop in minute ventilation. But watch what happens the minute we are past that inflection point. We are going to drop our minute ventilation by the exact same amount. We dropped it by the same amount. We didn't change that. Incidentally, you know what causes a drop in minute ventilation? Oh, wait, intubation. What do we do? We paralyze the patient. We induce them. We make them stop breathing. It causes some apnea. Not for very long necessarily, but it's still highly relevant here. Why? Because for the same degree of decrease in minute ventilation, 
If you are starting at a pH on the left of the curve, below that inflection point, watch what happens. The same decrease in minute ventilation, look how much your pH drops. Now, if you start at a pH of like 7.3 and it drops to like uh, 7.1, I'm not that concerned. But if you're like our patient, you're starting at a pH of 7.10 and you now drop to 6.9, 6.8, now your patient is probably going to arrest. Um, we talk in the acid base lecture about strategies to prevent that from happening, but the important part for the vent lecture is you've just intubated the patient. They're in trouble. You probably should have tried to not intubate the patient because even if you get them through this whole intubation process without arresting, and there's ways you can try and do that if you have to, you have just shot yourself in the foot. Your problems are not over. Why? Because if their major problem, the major reason for their respiratory distress is because they have a profound metabolic acidosis that they're trying to compensate for. You can get a lot more minute ventilation out of a spontaneously breathing patient than you can out of a ventilator. So you have probably just made this entire situation worse because now you're going to have really difficult vent management trying to get that same minute ventilation. And a lot of that is because, remember on a vent, you only have control over setting the respiratory rate and the inspiratory time, right? It's that inspiratory time you can control. Whereas if they're spontaneously breathing, they can control both inspiration and expiration, make both of them active. They can get a lot better minute ventilation and they're not breathing through a straw, right? We talked about airway resistance and how a small change in the radius can cause a big change in airway resistance. That also makes a difference. So for patients with metabolic acidosis who are compensating, who look terrible, I try really hard not to intubate them. I will put them on BiPAP to help support their minute ventilation, but you're going to have a really hard time. And so that's why it matters to understand what you can do and can't do in terms of adjusting the IDE on the vent versus spontaneously breathing.